the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Planted. I'm Sarah Pion, your host. And today I have an old friend on the podcast um, and colleague. We worked together for several years, Sandra Davis. She is a Navy veteran, money mentor, speaker, educator, and consultant. And she's also the founder of Sage Financial Solutions, a nonprofit specializing in financial coach training and education and planning for low wealth and underrepresented communities. Sandra and I worked together at a nonprofit called Earn many, many years ago. And I learned a lot from her, um, really about generational wealth, underrepresented communities, and what we need to do to empower people so that they can empower their families and they can have wealth throughout the ages. So, Sandra, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's It's been a long time, and I'm just so excited to have this conversation today. I cannot even tell you how happy I am. Number one, just so proud of the work that you're doing. And then to have an opportunity to talk with you about it and the connection, you know, between uh, wealth and this field, you know, this field that you're making such strides in. I'm just really glad to be here. So glad you're doing so well and glad to be able to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. Even though you're not in, in the cannabis sphere, when was the first time you used cannabis and what was it like? So there's two stories to that. There's two stories to that. First is the first time I wanted people to think I used cannabis, right? <laughs> so I was the scary, yeah, no kidding. I was the scariest kid, right? I was that kid that never wanted to get in trouble, but wanted to look like I was cool, right? So I was this like super, super nerd. I was in junior high school at APG and any in San Francisco. And there was this dude that I had just the biggest crush on, and he was the biggest weed head in school, and everybody knew he was the biggest weed head, biggest weed head, biggest player, and I just had the, this crush on him that you would not believe. It was crazy. And, and I wanted him to think that I got high, too, right? So uh, one of my brothers um, had uh, his little weed stash in the cigar box in his bedroom, and so I'm, I'm going to be in so much trouble when he hears this. So I went in there and I steal his stash, right? I steal some of his stuff to take it to school so that my friend would think, you know, so this dude would think that I, you know, uh, uh, was a school kid. So I mean, that dude took my weed, went on about his business. <laughs> he wasn't oh. thinking about me. <laughs> he wasn't thinking about me. He just had no interest in me whatsoever. Apparently my nerdiness showed through and you know back then this was what 19 what maybe 71 1971 and uh yeah he wasn't he wasn't buying it i, I my my game was my game was peaked he, he was not interested <laughs> it didn't matter how good my brother's week was he was not even remotely interested in me so that was my first like experience right then then the second thing was we happened to live next door to a police officer and um my i have three older brothers i have three older brothers and one of my brothers had a weed plant growing in the yard right and so the police officer comes over to the house and he tells my mom he's like well you know uh i'm getting ready to have a party here and a lot of my police officer friends are going to be here uh, so y'all should probably cut down, uh, <laughs> cut down <laughs> this plant, you know, you should cut down this what plant. I couldn't neighbor. have been <laughs> Exactly, right? Because he could have handled that. I mean, back then, you know, he could have handled that a completely different way. You know, he could have handled that a completely different way. And so, you know, and of course, my mom didn't know what the plant was, which was surprising. But, you know, back then, you know, she she was old and didn't really know what was happening either. Um, but yeah, so, so those are like the first like awareness of weed, right? That's not like first awareness. So I didn't actually use weed until I was probably, I guess around 17. Um, and I had joined the Navy and, uh, and of course, you know, they had the zero tolerance policy, but back then they didn't have any real way to, 
to do anything about it. They just told us, don't mess with it. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, okay, we won't. Um, <laughs> so, but they, they didn't really have a way to keep us from using it at that point. They weren't drug testing or anything like that at that point. And um, so I, you know, we were all, I was in Norfolk, Virginia, and we're sitting there and, you know, we, we're high and I go to sleep. And so my friend is like, look, I can't be wasting my weed on you. You can't, you can't, you can't. So, so, you know, my, my punkness just continued. I was just this biggest wimp. And even to this day, like I can use um, a combination of THC, CBD with, for like, I'm having discomfort or pain or just need to rest. But man, if I'm still such a lightweight, it's not, it's not even funny. Uh, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. I'm such a lightweight. And the grateful part of that is that, you know, I can have tincture or something and one small bottle will last me for a year. You know, I'm just yeah. such a lightweight that it lasts forever. So I'm actually kind of grateful for that. Oh, I think that's a great thing. I, I, I always tell people because when people tell me I they say they have a low tolerance, there's always the lowering of the eyes and like the shameful look. And I'm like, that's awesome. Do you know how much money you save? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I'm such a lightweight. <laughs> well, there's something new that I didn't know, and I love it. <laughs> that I'm a lightweight? You didn't know? Well, and I hadn't oh, heard yeah. your cannabis experiences either. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny because I never, I never really think about it. You know, I mean, now, of course, things are legal. I still, I will say this. I think I still have... Uh, probably what a lot of people of my generation have is that we, I don't, I think a lot of us still haven't adapted to the legal, the, the legality of it, right? So there's still, um, I won't say a taboo, but a discomfort. Um, you know, I don't really have a taboo. I, I didn't before this either, but I think that there's still this element of, Oh, you know, be careful about what, how much of your business you put in the street because, you know, but the wonderful thing about being my age now is that, as long as what I'm doing is not illegal and I'm not hurting anybody but me, anybody who has a problem with the choices that I make, then, then you know, they, we're just not a good fit together. You right. know, so that's, that's okay. I can I can live with that. You know, I can live with that. Is uh, I am who I am. Me and Popeye, I am who I am, and you know, I accept other people as they are, and people have to do the same for me. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, and I, I wonder too, like. Because the last the last downtown job that I was working, I was working with you. And then I after cancer, I went into cannabis. So, of course, we were right. all talking about <laughs> our cannabis use. But right. when I was going through treatment, I was really reluctant to let my colleagues know that I was using cannabis because I was worried about that impacting my job. And I, I do right. wonder, like, how many people feel free having those conversations even now, even though less companies than ever are doing drug testing for cannabis. You know, I, I, it's it's an interesting thing to kind of see because I live in a little bubble now, but it was very different before. And that was also, though, before legalization. So I, I right. wonder how much that's changed as far as conversations in the office. Yeah, I suspect people still feel uh, uh, pretty cautious, you know, particularly people like, you know, I'm in the financial planning world. Um, so I would suspect that people still have, uh, you know, a bit of nervousness about what they say and to whom. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, yeah. And I think the unfortunate part about that is that people don't have any problem saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to go and drink five shots of tequila after work today, but they would be uncomfortable saying, you know, yes, CBD and THC is how I am able to rest at night, you know, or how I manage my anxiety or how I, you know, uh, navigate a, a world that, that is dead set on crushing my spirit, you know, <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, it's, uh, did I just slip that in there? Yeah. So, so, you know, I think, I think that that's, uh, you know, I think that that's an important aspect of, of even this conversation and the way, the thing I appreciate about what you do of, uh, you know, in the same way, to be honest, the same way I, uh, demythify money you demythify read and, and cannabis right you know so i think that 
that's a really good role that that you're playing to make sure that people can understand, you know, what it what it means, what it doesn't mean. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people who are comfortable using it and yet not comfortable talking about it. Yeah. You well, know, and, and in a in a in a world, I, let me finish thought, In a world where uh, there are so many, still so many young black folks still in jail mm-hmm. behind weed, you know, behind selling weed or using weed or whatever. It's just, uh, I think there's still a lot of uh, angst, you know, in, in our society. Uh, and, and, and until all of those ills are dealt with, I think it's going to be very difficult to um, uh, to have real open conversations across the generations and in the office place and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I I learned a lot from you because you you had to have a lot of conversations with people around their relationships with money and things like that, which is a very vulnerable place to be in. And a lot of people just avoid those conversations. And you just always had such a a compassionate and a, a compassionate way of, of working with people and also empowering them. And I just always found that so incredibly inspiring, which was why when um, when I was on when I was one of the chairs of the Legalization Task Force for San Francisco and we first started talking about social equity and how to be able to help people who were impacted by the war on drugs. And we started talking about giving people opportunities to own businesses. And the first thing I thought of was, well, some of the work that, you know, we had done at the nonprofit, but specifically about you and how you have really good conversations about people's relationships with money and how those habits can be passed down and how do we create generational wealth. I'm just wondering if you can speak some more to that because I think it's it's part of the equation. We talk about getting people in business. We talk about creating equitable partnerships and opportunities. And those are all great. And quite honestly, they're not really happening the way we wanted them to. It's equity. There's a lot of good players in equity that are trying to make it look the way it should and there's a lot of bullshit out there and there's a lot of people trying to game the system and take away, you know, opportunities for the people who these are actually supposed to be for. But even if somebody does succeed and there are there are definitely some, you know, very successful black owned businesses and cannabis businesses that are owned by people of color. But you can succeed in your business and you can still lose it all if you don't have a good relationship with your money. Right, 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 right. For, for me, so there's a couple of things. You know, we can't talk about wealth building without talking about wealth stripping. So if you think about it, every person who is still in prison or in or justice involved, as we like to call it now, everyone who is still justice involved related to old cannabis charges or whatever, their family has generational trauma. They were unable to provide for their families. They were unable to be present for their families. Their shame was created around their choice to, to, to sell cannabis to make a living, right? So in addition to them not being able to be present, there's the shame, the blame, all of that that goes with it. And the, the, the ability to access wealth building strategies, right? And so, so when we just start there, uh, cannabis as it is today, and the people who are making money today, I don't have to tell you, they're not those folks. And, and, and I believe that these equity efforts are no different than every other equity effort that has happened in this country. The civil rights, you know, as far as civil rights, as far as, um, Affirmative action. Affirmative action benefited women, white women, by far more than benefited black people. You know, uh, uh, efforts to uh, remove barriers benefited equal rights and benefited white women more than black people. And so even things that are supposed to be designed to benefit us in more, more often than not, they just simply did not. That's not an accident. 
that's by design. Right. And so when people say, oh, the system's broken, say, no, the system's doing what the system was designed to do. Mm-hmm. And black people are always at the bottom. That's why I don't say, that's why I don't consider black people when I say people of color. No, because people of color will walk on us to get over that hurdle, to get what they need to get for their own community. When it comes to black folks, very, very few people have our back in the way we have theirs. So for me, that's just like number one. So when I say black, I mean black. When I mean say people of color, I mean people of color. Mm-hmm. And so for me, for me, for the black community to have access in the same way, um, we're going to have to do everything for ourselves just like we always have. Just like we always have. You know, when we look at the rebuilding of Tulsa, you know, last year was a big year about the rebuilding of Tulsa. So a lot of people were aware of things they never were before. To me, this is analogous to that. As soon as black folks have an opportunity to build wealth, move forward, there's going to be something that undercuts that effort. Right. And so so we have to recognize that that makes our own choices and our own relationship with our money and our own decisions of how we use our wealth even more important. Because not only do we generally not have the same access, we also come under a, a level of scrutiny that nobody else comes under, right? And, and so we, we have to watch it, we've got to grow it, and then we got to make sure we keep it. And so when you look at what's happening around black neighborhoods in the Bay Area, I was born and raised in San Francisco, um, you know, the Fillmore doesn't look like me anymore, right? right. Uh, the Bayview doesn't look like me anymore. Lakeview doesn't look like me anymore, right? So, so understanding that black people as a, as a race of people in the United States are always under some kind of fire or under some kind of scrutiny above and beyond anybody else. You know, and that's just, that's the reality of our experience in this country. Now, rather than get into oppression Olympics, we have to figure out, so then what do we do? So what does Sandra do? One of the reasons that you connected with me the way you did or, or said what you said about how I can relate to people is that I talk from the, the reality that I have faced. I dropped out of high school at 17 years old, took my GED, joined the Navy. When my mom had to sell our home, I had to take care of myself. So this college-bound nerdy kid that I just described to you literally had to learn how to fend for herself. I had a horrible perspective and relationship with money. I didn't understand that I was even supposed to have a relationship with money, number one. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, And so I made a lot of financial mistakes. So what happens for me when I'm talking with people, irrespective of how they got into the situation they're in, I'm going to talk to them from a place of where is your power? What are the things you're already doing well? What are the areas where there's a gap between what you know and what you do? You might hear the saying, oh, if you know better, you do better. Well, maybe, maybe not. But you can't do better if you don't know better. So the first thing is making sure we understand our own money personality, our own perspective about money. Uh, what causes us when we, <clears throat> when we are the one in the family to make it financially, to not sit down and have a conversation with our family and say, hey, look, I've got this windfall. We can't blow this. So that means I'm not going to be doling out a bunch of cash to everybody. We're going to be smart. And we're going to think about this as how do we generate wealth using this cash flow, this windfall as leverage, right? And so that means somebody in the circle has to understand that because, I mean, you and I know and every research paper will tell you some of the kids that were selling weed and and making a living, it's not about smart, it's not about intelligence, it's about understanding how money works in your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was raised with a mom who bought a new car every two years. Now, who knew they lasted longer than that? Right. But they do. But my mom was raised really super poor. So for her, the ability to go out and buy this new car meant something to her. It meant she had made it. It meant she had achieved. So she didn't stop to think about, OK, this is really getting in the way 
of me saving and building wealth and putting money away for school for my kids or whatever. She didn't think about it that way. It wasn't that she was trying to be flashy or show. It wasn't that. She was such an impoverished child that the ability to go and spend money this way was satisfying to her soul. And so when people who either have less, have been oppressed, disenfranchised, or whatever, when we, we then have access, we have to be mindful of what does the money mean to us? What does the money do for us? And how we spend it, save it, share it, or invest it, well, those are the only four things you can do. Spend it, save it, share it, invest it. That's it. There's nothing else. So how do we do one of those four things in a way that aligns with our desired outcome, our goals, our values? So for me, I tell people all the time, I keep my needs small so my wants can be outrageous. When I go to Africa, I'm gone a month at a time. I take off every October, the entire month for my birthday. I don't work on Fridays. I don't work the last week of the month. I keep my monthly, regular, required expenses low so that I can live the life I want. Now, I'm 60 years old, right? So I'm not going to do too much of nothing I don't want to do anyway. <laughs> but but it's, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But my, my point in this is that I money buys me time. So I don't buy a lot of things. I don't need nothing. I have everything I want. Right? I live in a small two-bedroom condo. My car is damn near older than you. Right? <laughs> My car has 360,000 miles on it. Right? But, but what it, this allows me to do is fly first class to Ghana and go to Benin, Togo, and then take another trip the following year to Senegal, Gambia, and Guinea-Bissau. Because that is what I care about. Right. So with my grandkids, I don't buy them gifts. I have three grandchildren. I don't buy them gifts. But I can take them on a month long trip on a black history tour in the South. So that's what I value. That wasn't always the case. When I was a young woman, I had more money in my son's video game collection than in his college fund. I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize what I was doing. Now I own the condo that I live in. I own a home that my son and daughter-in-law will inherit, that my grandchildren, that homeless teenager that I was, my grandchildren will never have to worry about that. So I bought a house and I put it in a trust. So, so what you experienced when you met me was you experienced Sandra learning first for herself and then sharing what she learned. Talking about myself in the third person because I'm special like that, <laughs> right? Sharing what she learned to the community at large. So I came into this field. I got a master's degree in financial planning so that I could help my people. Now I help all the people, I help all kinds of people, but I did it so that I could help my people because black folks didn't have the same kind of access to information that other people had. And even when they did, you know, you, you, you can't go too far without seeing how many black athletes, actors, prominent people who trusted somebody to handle their taxes and then they end up going to jail for tax evasion because they didn't understand what somebody else was doing with their money. Right? So those are the things that I was trying to deal with. So I've worked with athletes. I've worked with people who have multi-millions and had to then have a different kind of conversation with their family because, you know, and this isn't only for, for black folks and most people. You know, most people, when they have a windfall, they want to support their family. They want to help. And there's nothing, there's no shame in that. I, I get very annoyed when I hear a financial planner or advisor say, oh, well, you got so-and-so on the payroll. You need to get the, look, look, you on the payroll, you, you, you're paying, getting a fee for managing somebody else's money. And so what makes you think this money shouldn't benefit the family and build that generational wealth? So when we think about it, and I know I'm on a tear right now, I'm going to stop so you get to say something, we need to turn from this disproportionate legal response that black people went through and this disenfranchisement that we still experience and now begin to make a decision for ourselves. What do we want this money to mean? 
what does it mean to me as a woman at 60, which is very different than what it meant at a woman as a woman at 40 and 30 and 20. So what does it mean for you now, where you are right now? And what do you want it to mean so that you can take care of 50-year-old you and 60-year-old you and 70 and 80-year-old you? So how do we think about our money as a bigger life cycle? Right, right. And no, you didn't go on a tear. That was that was exactly what needed to be said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we we do see like. Well, I'm gonna go a little off off topic, but even you know how people have been being super lame with passing voting rights. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just yeah. we and. Mm-hmm. You know, we we are we do have a lot of people still languishing in jail. We're and even at even states like California, where we're starting to, you know, expunge people's records and things like that, we still have people languishing in jail. And and why is that? It's it's because of money because they're all privatized. And when we're looking at you know, when we were first having the conversations around social equity programs like that, I just remember saying to everyone on the task force, I'm like, you know, these people aren't criminals, they're entrepreneurs. And then they mm-hmm. look at you. And and always were. And always were. Yeah. Always were. You know? Yeah. That's the thing. And, you know, and, and so that that's the hard part about, you know, being a black person in a country that loves to hate you, you know, um, and, and that's what, you know, that's what uh, folks are, are dealing with and that's what folks have to have to grapple with. And, and here's the thing, you got to do all of that without letting them win. Right. So, so do I ignore that? And first of all, I'm a very light skinned black woman. Right. So people don't know what the hell they're looking at when they look at me. So they say some of the craziest stuff around me. You can't even imagine some of the stuff people will say to me, not realizing they're talking to a black woman. So, you know, that that in and of itself is is a whole other uh, situation. But when when people look at the, the situation as it is today, and, and, and look at the choices that people have to make just to survive uh, and thrive, you know, to get to the point where you're not just surviving, but you're actually thriving. You know, even, even if you are out of the justice system and expunged, to what end? Then what? Right. It and doesn't undo the trauma that you've been through. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things that we know, there's this wonderful book called Scarcity. And, and this book talks about, there's another one called The Body Keeps the Score, which you probably already know about. But uh, scarcity is about how your brain is affected by trauma and distress and how it impacts your ability to make good financial decisions. Mm. So if we're going to uh, uh, accept and, and acknowledge that people who have been uh, uh, adversely impacted, you know, by the, by the justice system. And even if they're out, they got an opportunity to do a business, the whole nine yards, even with all of that, the, the trauma is still present. You know, so how do we then recognize the financial impacts of the trauma? And the decision making, like, you know, Sandra's ability, Sandra's personal ability to make good financial decisions when I'm under stress or, or dealing with the, the, the aftermath of a trauma. So we just can't ignore those kinds of things. You know, we can't, we can't do, you know, what everybody loves to do when it comes to black folks so much. Oh, well, just get over it. It's over now. <laughs> you know, it's over now. Things are better. Well, not really. No, no, things are it, not really better. No, it's not. I mean, that's like, well, before we worked together, when I was working at Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and that was when President Obama was a senator when I first started working there. Mm-hmm. And um, and when he when he was inaugurated, we all took the morning off to watch. And after that, 
we were having issues on the development side because people were like, well, it's all over. We have a black president now. There are no issues <laughs> of civil rights. And so we were like, oh, you've not seen our docket. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah and, and you know here's the thing there, there's two aspects uh you know there's a lot of conversation around well you know whose job is it to educate people is it black folks job to educate people about racism and and you know uh, should we be doing the emotional labor right and and, and it, it's both and you know it, it's not my job to do it and if people are um, uh, ignorant by choice, that's one thing. But if people, you know, I don't do a lot of DEI work because of this very reason, right? It's not, it's not my job to shepherd you through the lies for you to figure out the truth. Um, but, but I also understand that when people, like even when you ask me to do this, you know, it's like, well, where does, where does the money thing fit in with the cannabis? Well, everywhere, because there's no aspect of our lives, nothing, that money doesn't touch. Right. Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. And so if we ignore, you know, I don't know a lot, you know, admittedly, I don't know a lot about the cannabis equity programs. Um, it is my observation from the limited knowledge that I have that they're not really any more effective than, you know, uh, um, other similar programs. You know, um, it does not appear to me that uh, number one, the justice issues are dealt with, and then number two, that uh, black businesses are having the same uh, uh, level of of uh, benefit that that others are having, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, kicking a little bit to the side for folks is just not sufficient. No, you know, it's, it's not, not sufficient. So it's not, and and we have we have activists that, you know, own and work in the industry that are doing a lot of great social justice work. Mm-hmm. But those aren't the people mm-hmm. who are creating, you know, the the legal aspects of these programs, the foundational aspects of these programs and the municipalities. And that's where things are getting messed up. I mean, it's even when we were first talking about all this, you know, the language that we have to use, like when we were talking about the equity program in San Francisco and they're saying, okay, well, we are going to gear it towards people who were impacted by the war on drugs. And I was, I just, <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I know we can't say black people, but when you say that people or other people are going to go in there and get the benefits that were not meant for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And here's the thing. They, they can't say black people but they can profile black people. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, you know, you and you and I are having, you know, an age old conversation that that's, that is the reality of being black in the United States. You know, that that's, I, 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 I have accepted that that is not going to change in my lifetime. While that is uh, disheartening, uh, I refuse to accept the lies that, you know, oh, well, things are better. Well, no, they're not better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, I still in, in 2022 lose sleep when my partner goes out to the golf course. I still worry when my son jogs around uh, uh, our, uh, a neighborhood that, you know, he doesn't live in. You know, uh, I'm still concerned about my grandchildren being able to grow old, you know. So that's just, uh, that's how it is. You know, yes, I still have the talk. I have to have the same talk with my grandsons uh, that my mother had to have with my brothers from 60 years ago. So, you know, uh, uh while it is nice to think we're in a kumbaya moment and all the Black Lives Matter and everybody loves us this week, um, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm, I'm not in agreement with that. That is not my experience. That's not what I see. No. You know. So. So I said all that to say. How you know? What does that have to do with money? What does it have to do with cannabis? I said all that to say. In the same way, the people in Tulsa 
are having to rebuild their own community under their own steam, that's what black people are going to have to do in every aspect of what we do, which means we have to exercise our personal power in addition to the work we need to do around policy, advocacy, those kinds of things. I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, Sandra, you're not really going to coach people out of the racial wealth gap. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. No way. Because the system, as I said, is doing what it's supposed to do. And all I can do, though, uh, and, and where I spend my energy is helping people own their own personal power about their financial choices and their financial future. So that's what I can do. And that's, you know, how I spend my whatever years I've got left, you know, uh, that's how I spend them. Do you feel like your work in many ways plants a seed for we're talking about generational wealth and to be able to create a stronger population of financially empowered people because there's a lot to be said in this crazy ass oh, world that where money is king about voting with your wallet and actually having, you know, the monetary power to do that. Like I, for an example, I kind of see like at, at a great, at a greater scale. And when we're looking at celebrity, like a lot of the things that like Jay-Z is doing with other black businesses mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. creating mm -hmm. abundance. And it's, that's like, I mean, it, it's amazing. And I do, do you see that? I guess, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's both, right? That's absolutely necessary. And it's only going to go so far. You know, it's only going to be able to accomplish so much only because as long as people, just like what you said about, uh, you know, having a black president, as long as people can say, oh, it's not so bad anymore. They got black billionaires. Right. So it both helps and harms. Mm -hmm. it, it can hide the problem uh, because people can think, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's all equal now. Anybody that's black that doesn't. That's not, you know, on their way to be a billionaire. That's their own problem. It's, it's you know, the, the level, the, the playing field's level now. You know, so it has its strengths and its weaknesses. Now, I, again, admittedly, do not know nearly enough about, uh, well, I don't even know that I want to know more, to be honest, about what, you know, uh, y'all youngins are doing. <laughs> about, <laughs> about, girl, don't make me lie. Uh, about what y'all youngins are doing about, uh, about, you know, cannabis businesses and all that. I don't know, you know. If I, if I need some CBD, my son swings by and I, you know, I've never even been, no, that's not true. I've been in one, I've been in one business, which was kind of cool. I like how they were set up. Um, but, you know, I think we just have to be realistic about what kind of impact uh, uh, that can have, you know, because unless, unless it is so accessible, the business end of it, I mean, right? Unless the business end of it is so accessible that in the same way, you know, uh, uh, somebody can open up a, a beauty shop, you know, or they can open up a catering business or they can, you know, not only to get it open, but to thrive. Because like you said, it's one thing to open a business. It's another thing to keep the money you've made. It's another thing to be able to create a business where you can thrive, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, um, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure how how uh, how available that is to the folks who are not Jay Z. You know, it's it's hard. Uh, and it, I, I don't know. Oh, you would find it to be a nightmare, Sandra, because in San Francisco, you know, in order to be able to apply for a permit, you have to already be renting the space. So you have a space that you're putting money into. Oh my! That's not drawing any revenue, and you could you know, possibly not get your permit. Oh, wow. And that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's why, you know, there are people who are equity operators that have had to take on partners that haven't done right by them because mm. they've needed the revenue to keep afloat for the possibility of opening a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I really wish that I could, 
say more and speak more intelligently about that. But, you know, I mean, you know me well enough to know I'm never going to hold myself out as an expert that I don't know anything about. The areas that I am an expert, though, and that's where, you know, as as black people in this country, we have to be really mindful and thoughtful about uh, our collective, yeah. you know, who we are as a collective and 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 how we grow as a collective. Um, you know, I know a couple of people who are, are you know, doing some, some work that I think is kind of similar to what you do. I don't really, again, know enough about it to speak intelligently. But, you know, there's got to be more of that, right? More of us who either are in a position uh, and maybe who don't understand the field, right, but have access to a location, you know, or have access. And, and you know, I don't know if something like that is happening where um, there's a brother, uh, Damon Lawrence, who who is in the uh, hospitality industry, and he is always looking for ways to help other small businesses thrive, you know, and, and I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, an area of work, I don't know, but my point is that he is always looking at how to help businesses who are not as far along as he is uh, uh, in, in being able to, to grow and build uh, sometimes from nothing. And uh, there, I don't know if you saw it. There's this group that just started, actually, I think they kicked off yesterday called The Bow. No. And it is a collaborative of black women. You should check it out. It's this collaborative of black women going after major government contracts. And so, and maybe this is already happening in the cannabis industry. I don't know, but maybe that's something that black business owners, um, you know, who aren't the Jay-Z's of the world, I'm not knocking them, but they can't, they're not going to be able to do this for everybody. You know, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that they can never touch. Right. And, and, and they're an anomaly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 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 So, but yeah, so, you know, yeah, check out the bowl. I think so. So when you ask, what are my thoughts about that? I think programs like that, collaboratives like that, can make a huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I think the, uh, that's what it, But you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Sarah. That's what it's always been for black people. You know, any time we think we're going to do something and make it on our own without each other, that's where the whole concept of Ubuntu comes from. I am because you are. Because every time we do something successful, it's because we go far together. Yeah. You know, and and it's not that we can't, you know, make some strides and do some of those things with people of other uh, communities. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, uh, what's the standard? Some of my best friends are from other communities, right? So, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just the idea that we have to be able to collaborate in ways that often, you know, are beyond what other people might have to do. You know, we might have to, you know, we might have to do some things that other folks may not have to do, you know, in, in order to, in order to make it work for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like things like that. I, I like collaboratives. Uh, I have a team of, you know, God, well, there's like 15 coaches now. So when we deploy somebody on, for coaching projects, I've got a whole team of people that, uh, uh, that, that help clients, help the clients we work with. You know, most of our work is in the nonprofit sector, but we also do a lot of workforce, uh, financial coaching so that people can work with somebody, number one, who looks like them and who has similar experiences to them and those kinds of things. So that's really a, a very joyful part of my work. You know, to be able to to do that. Yeah, well, it's it's got it. I think it's important, especially when you're dealing with something that puts you in a, such a vulnerable place, like finance. And maybe a lot of people don't think of that off the top of their head as being a vulnerable place, but I I sure do. I mean, it's just yeah, it's yeah. it's super private, and we have our traumas, and we have different things around that, and to, to be able to work with somebody who sees, who has, who has seen and experienced the world through a similar lens has to yeah. be a very yeah. healing thing too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. And I do think it's important for people to know how to find trusted advisors. So a big part of my work is also making sure that people know how to choose well, you know, whether you're getting, 
you know, pro bono support or, or, you know, similar to what you all were trying to do, offer the, the, you know, the equity, uh, partners, uh, some advice and, and, and some, or some help that would not cost them anything. But even if you have to pay, how do you choose well? How do you know you're not getting scammed, ripped off, all of those things? And so that's really where we try to spend our time to make sure that people, number one, have access irrespective of their, uh, their ability to uh, uh, achieve wealthy, you know, achieve wealthy, what might be considered wealthy status, right? Mm-hmm. But then also, when you decide to choose, how do you choose in a way that you can trust your financial professional? Right. You know, because everybody, even if somebody's offering to do something for you pro bono, that doesn't mean, number one, that it's good. It also doesn't mean that they've got your best interest at heart. So, you know, there's just a lot of things, no matter what race you are, no matter what financial position you're in. There's just a lot of things to consider. And you're right, money's a very sensitive topic for most people, I would say. And, um, you know, the more we can normalize having conversations like this, the easier it will be for people to talk about things that might be a little bit more uncomfortable for them. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody is looking for say you're an entrepreneur that's putting together mm-hmm. your business and you're starting to realize that you need to tune up your relationship or heal your relationship with finance. Mm-hmm. What What's a checklist of things that you should do when you're, when you're figuring out who and what you need to help you with this? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is kind of already knowing where you are, right? What's already going on with you? What are you doing that's working for you and what are you doing that's not? And then deciding what kind of professional is going to be most helpful. For some people, you just might need a little bit of education, right? You just might need to know better. Other people, you already know, but maybe your behavior isn't aligned with the things that you really uh, need to do and even know to do in order to get where you want to go. So, you know, number one, do you, do you know? If you know and you're, you're having trouble with behavior, which, you know, a lot of us do. I mean, that's certainly what brought me to the profession. Um, I knew better. There were some times that I knew. Sometimes I didn't know, to be honest. But sometimes I knew better and I just wasn't doing better. It's just like, you know, uh, if you want to lose weight, we know we got to eat well and we got to exercise, right? You got you to uh, put, hey, put out more than you take in. Same thing with money, right? You, right. you, you Same thing. So there, there's that. But then there's also... Um, if, if the doing better is hard, working with a coach is often going to be, uh, more resonant because the focus isn't about the dollars and the cents. It's about the behavior and how do you, in a non-judgmental, uh, and, and compassionate way, uh, a compassionate for self, um, really start to look at the, the choices that you're making and the choices you want to be making to change, you know, to change the, the situation that you're in. So that's where I would say start. And then, you know, um, how to find a trusted advisor, that really has a lot to do with what you have access to, you know. Um, and, and I'd say the first thing is to, to know who's available to you. Like if you work for a company where there's a 401k or a 403b or something like that, you may have access to a financial planner who can help you do that. If you don't, there are programs like my program. There's also uh, a platform, and I'll send you an email of this so you can share it with your listeners, um, uh, uh, where you can actually get free coaching support uh, uh, through a community-based or a nonprofit called AFCPE. So if, if somebody contacts AFCPE and they ask, for an FFC, that's FFC, like uh, Fred, Fred, Charlie, right? They'll actually get someone that I've trained uh, and they can get that support for free, um, you know, especially during COVID. It, it won't be free for long, you know, because at some point we, we expect COVID won't last forever. But right now people can get a financial coach at no cost to them. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to get that kind of support. You just want to make sure that the person feels right to you as well. Mm-hmm. So the, don't assume that that you have to tolerate something that doesn't feel right to you. Money is personal. Money is personal. So don't 
put yourself in a position where you're stuck talking to somebody that you don't feel understands you or even worse, doesn't care about your financial well-being. Those are some really, really good tips. Thank you for that. I think, you know, a lot of us just get really anxious thinking about in general and we don't know where to start. And especially when it's compounded by maybe shame with how we've, Mm -hmm. you know, had to, how things have just been. No fault. Life happens, you know, and it it can be really hard to navigate that and to, and to even ask for help. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and I just want to thank you for being on the show today because I just don't get to get, I just don't get to see you enough. Like, we're not I know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and to hear your voice today, just, it just makes my heart sing. And you know how much immense love I have for you and immense respect I have for your work. And I just really, really am grateful that you're willing to be part of the conversation. Well, thank you. The feeling is mutual. I'm so glad to see what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I think it's also encouraged me to learn a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much maxed. I'm a, a certified mindfulness teacher as well. So that's something I've recently added to my uh, repertoire. So I'm pretty busy these days, but I, I really think the work you're doing is important, um, you know, and, and I look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you so much. If our listeners want to follow you on social media or contact you, how should they do that? Yeah, so on Facebook and Twitter, Sage Money, and on Instagram, although I'm not really active right now, they kind of locked me out for a minute. I don't know what's up with that. On on Instagram, I'm sage.money. Sorry about that, but that's how it is. And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn, Sandra Davis. So any, any one of those platforms. Awesome. And my organization is sagefinancialsolutions.org. Thank you so much. And for you listeners out there who want to follow Planted, we are on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, On Facebook, we are Planted with Sarah Pion. We are Planted with Sarah on Twitter and on Instagram. You can listen to planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts we are on pandora spotify amazon apple google tune in stitcher all of it <laughs> you can tune in you get and, around oh, girl you get around oh yeah i'm everywhere <laughs> <laughs> And spread the word. If there's an episode you like, share it. If you're listening to an episode on your favorite platform, um, leave us a review. Give us some idea of what you're liking, what you're not liking. We want to hear. We, we want to hear from you. We'd love it if you'd spread the love because we've got a lot of great guests this month. And um, it's a crazy world out there. So be good to each other. Stay safe. Until next time, stay curious.